Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all-around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. All right, everybody, as we have been talking about, Dr. Randeep Suneja is a cardiologist here in Houston, and with February being American Heart Month, it is unfortunately just the one month that we talk about heart disease, but it's something I know that Dr. Suneja talks about 24-7 in his practice and in his world. Dr. Sunasia, thanks for coming on tonight to Your Health First. It's really a pleasure to get you on finally. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure. Well, as you and I, and, and just for a, a little bit of uh, fun disclosure, Dr. Sunasia and I were residents back in Brooklyn together uh, back in 1987, 88, 89. And it's, it's amazing that we are reconnecting now both in patient care and on the radio and education. So I uh, always like to see these circular loops reconnect, and it's, it's a pleasure being able to get you involved in, uh, in what I'm doing. Absolutely. Loving it. Yeah. Now, okay, so with heart disease, as we both know, the general public needs to realize the importance of not only their heart and heart function, but heart disease, no matter how you cut it, it's the number one killer of all of us pretty much around the world. And so just to start off here, Dr. Sunesia, why is it or what pearls of wisdom do we give everybody tonight to begin to think seriously about their heart and keeping it healthy? Well, you do. You just pointed out, you know, heart disease. If you look at the statistics, it is number one cause of death in the U.S. And in fact, now it is number one cause of death all over the world, including right. uh, Asian countries. You know, in the U.S., the data is very scary. We have six hundred fifty-five thousand people die of heart disease every year. So, by definition, we have one person dying of heart disease every thirty-six seconds. I mean, it's a staggering statistics and you know it's uh, currently we have about close to 18 million people um, diagnosed with coronary artery disease and heart disease is a very big spectrum of which the largest burden is coronary artery disease Mm -hmm. which is the blockages in the arteries of the heart now and yeah mm -hmm. go ahead keep going and so and that leading on to the uh, coronary artery disease which is uh, basically the atherosclerosis, which causes the buildup of plaque in the arteries of the heart, and then the atherosclerosis process where the risk factors we will talk about leads to the buildup of plaque in other vascular beds. We talk about the carotid beds leading to carotid artery disease that leads to strokes. Then we have the peripheral vascular disease, which is the atherosclerosis and the peripheral vasculature. 
that leads to peripheral vascular disease and claudication, and in severe cases, may even possibly do amputation. So the entire beginning process of atherosclerosis that will affect, depending on the heart, the carotid arteries, the brain, the peripheral vasculature, so it can essentially affect the entire body. Really, and it's the entire, and, and that's what I, I, I feel at times there is an underappreciation that it is every, in essence, every artery in the body can be affected and damaged and cause a malfunction in that part of the body. And uh, it's, yes, it is the heart, the carotid artery, but it is the smaller arteries in other organs that can be affected. Absolutely. And that is the beginning of the atherosclerosis where you have the LDL particles or the fatty particles that enter the walls of the arteries and then lead on to the process of the inflammation and ultimately leading to atherosclerosis or a buildup of plaque. That is the atherosclerosis. And the heart attack is actually where there is a complete occlusion of one of the arteries of the heart that leads to damage to the heart muscle and the acute event leading to the heart attack. Yeah. Now, I I would say that the most important part of heart disease, or one of the many important parts, is understanding the risk factors for heart disease. And we can never hear about these much. Uh, that you know, we can never hear enough of them. And so, from your perspective, what what are the risk factors that everybody needs to know about? Sure. No, that's an excellent point for education. As you know, we have the American Heart Month next month, and education is so important for people to know. So we have risk factors of heart disease are divided into modifiable and non-modifiable. Non-modifiable risk factors is where we talk about family history of heart disease, right. where if you have parents or first-generation uh, sibling, if they have heart disease, basically for men, any man who has heart disease or heart attack or stroke above the age, below the age of 55, then that is positive family history for male. Right. And for women, any woman less than age 65, if they have heart disease or stroke, then that is family history. So anybody who has parents or... Uh, siblings with this positive history, that is considered positive family history. Then you have male gender is increased uh, predisposition to heart disease. And then we have multiple non-modifiable risk factors. And then obviously with age, age, as we increase in age, our risk for heart disease increases. But then we have the modifiable risk factors that include hyperlipidemia or elevated cholesterol, Mm -hmm. high blood pressure or hypertension, history of smoking, diabetes, uh, considered a very, very, very big, probably one of the biggest risk factors for heart disease, presence of diabetes. And uh, you being a liver specialist, you know, metabolic syndrome, leading on to pre-diabetes with diabetes, probably one of the most uh, important risk factors for heart disease. And then we have um, inactivity leading to obesity also, again, as a, a risk factors for heart disease. So these are, I would say, the major risk factors for heart disease. Now, when, when you see patients, because you mentioned hypertension, and the vast majority of the time, hypertension may give you absolutely no symptoms. And so people are walking along, they see you, and you mention that they have hypertension, we have to 
get it under control either through diet and lifestyle and or medication. What is the reception that you get from patients when you alert them that their hypertension is eventually going to lead to more complications? How is that received? You know, I'll, this is so such an important question you asked because this was just yesterday. I had a young gentleman, 45-year-old uh, uh, gentleman, who saw me four years ago. I started him on, he was hypertensive. I did a secondary hypertensive work, a severe hypertensive, requiring three medicines. I saw him for a year, and then he took medications for hypertension. And then, unfortunately, he moved and lost his insurance. Right. And he came back yesterday, and his blood pressure in the office was in the range of 200 over 105 range. Wow. We repeated it, washed it, no symptoms at all. And when I did the EKG and did the ultrasound of the heart, we found he had left ventricular hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. That is what we call it the silent killer because already the heart is already, the heart muscle has already thickened. And I showed him, I said, listen, sir, you came to me four years ago and at that time you did not have left ventricular hypertrophy. You come to me four years later and now look what has happened. You probably been having severe hypertension for a long period of time and not taking medications and now your heart muscle has already gotten thicker and ultimately leads to later enlargement of the heart and ultimately leads to subnocardial ischemia because the heart muscle, when it gets thicker, then that requires more blood flow. And blood flow to the heart is fixed. So ultimately, it leads to ischemia and it is, and then leads to presence of blockages and stimulates atherosclerosis. So heart disease, um, hypertension is a silent killer. We know that. It's right. Severe hypertension can lead to strokes. But persistent, untreated hypertension leads to atherosclerosis. is one of the most strong factors for atherosclerosis and leads to silent blockages. And ultimately, they can lead to heart attack and possibly cause death. You know, one, one phrase, and I hear this um, a lot, especially in diabetes. Patients will come to me, and I'll be looking over years of their medical records, and... I will see that they have been either diabetic or pre-diabetic for three, four, five years. And I'll ask them, I'll say, look, your other physicians that have been seeing you, have they said anything about this abnormal blood sugar? And, and as I, I've said this a thousand times on, on the radio, but they'll say, oh, it's, I was told I just have a touch of diabetes. And the same goes for high blood pressure where they would say, oh, I just have a touch of high blood pressure. I'm not on medicine. And years go by, and then you have a scenario like this gentleman where the structure of the heart is changing for the, for the worse. Do you, do you see that, that people have this sort of mental attitude that, oh, it's just a touch, it's not that bad, and it won't hurt me? You said that so correctly, yes. Yeah. A touch of diabetes or, doc, my blood pressure goes up only when in the doctor's office. Okay, well, to some degree it is true. White right. coat hypertension is a clear-cut entity. So it is extremely important to follow up. You know, we encourage patients to monitor their blood pressure at home. And if the blood pressure is borderline elevated, it is not 
truly appropriate to start medications on the single visit. So right. we tell them, hey, you know what? I, I want to help you and you have to participate in your own care. We need you to buy a blood pressure instrument with arm cuff. Uh, and uh, we typically recommend, the back, actually American Heart Association has recommended Omron BP arm cuff, and now we have the 7 or 10 series, which are very user-friendly. Right. Start measuring two readings at home and start seeing, and then please come, and now with, for televisit, so easy. We do a follow-up, collect the data, and see what your numbers are, because then single... Uh, visit would not be the right thing unless it is quite significantly high. Right. But then we have ways of measuring when patients come with hypertension and they say, I have a little touch of hypertension. We do an EKG, which may show left ventricular hypertrophy. And more importantly, when you do echocardiogram, we are able to measure the thickness of the heart muscle. And if it is above 1.1 centimeter or 11 millimeters, it's more. That means they have left ventricular hypertrophy then that truly proves that they have been having hypertension for at least six months. You don't develop hypertrophy overnight. It is a process that takes months up to a year. And if they have been having silent hypertension for uh, six months to a year, we begin to see left ventricular hypertrophy. So once you share that with the patient, sir or ma'am, look, I am seeing left ventricular hypertrophy. Your blood pressure was 160 over 100 in the office. And he said, Doc, you know, when I go to the doctor's office, my pressure is high, I'm a little anxious, and I fully understand that. And we encourage them, hey, you know what? I want you to see this is a very important factor that we have. If you have already got left ventricular hypertrophy, you're going to need antihypertensive drugs. That is clear cut. This borderline issue of blood pressure right. of 90, 90, 500. And invariably, if you look at it, we have overweight patients are overweight. We have, you know, you see in the practice, sure. overweight and obesity is literally in 66 to 75% of the population. And now with the COVID, we are, everybody is under tremendous amount of stress. And we are seeing stress-induced hypertension, especially in the younger population in right. their 30s and 40s. People have been under tremendous amount of stress, whether from the family and economically and sure, health-wise. Sure. And that has also led to a lot of hypertension. And we explained, you know, stress-induced hypertension, a true entity, because when, as you know, that when you are tremendously stressed, the, the locus cerulis in the brain is releasing noradrenaline. In addition, the stress is also really stimulating your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. You have increased adrenaline being increased and gnawing adrenaline and adrenaline being increased, leading to hypertension. And such patients, we typically see younger patients in third, fourth, or early fifth decade, stress-induced hypertension, tiny, tiny doses of beta blockers. Minuscule, small doses of beta blockers will make drastic improvements in the right. blood pressure. Yeah, Drastic improvements. And they start feeling dark. You know what? I said, sir or ma'am, have you felt that you're short-tempered? Yeah, I feel my heart beats strongly at night or I've been short-tempered. These are all silent signs of hypertension, and they may not feel it, right. but they're actually becoming hypertensive. You know, the amazing thing is, and, and for everybody listening tonight, the muscle is a heart. It's no different than your bicep, your tricep, your quads. And, and when we exercise and lift weights, by straining those muscles, we get big biceps. When you strain the heart, it gets thick, the hypertrophy that Dr. Sinead is talking about. So it's, 
It's opposite of what we want for other muscles. We don't want the heart to get big and bulky and stop working. Absolutely, yeah. And then incorporating lifestyle modification is so important more today than ever. You know, we're talking about incorporating um, exercise, diet, right. yoga, meditation, lifestyle modification. When I did my lifestyle medicine boards in 2017, you know, they talked about all these pillars and we have been incorporating them in our practice throughout all these 28 years. I've been, I've been a big big believer in that because I practice it myself. And, yes. you know, if you practice yourself, you have to lead by example. Absolutely. And we tell our patients, these are so important. Medicines clearly are important. But if you know, you know, we talk about the power of nutrition and the um, Hippocratic, uh, uh, Hippocrates, uh, when, you know, in the 5th century BC, said, let your food be your medicine. That's right. And your medicine be your food. That you is know? music and, to uh, my so ears. These, these, <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's music to my ears when I hear that. <laughs> the healing power of nutrition is it, so, so important. It, and it, of course, exercise is also so important because, you know, DNA, you know, people say, oh, it is my genes. Of course it is your genes. But, you know, DNA is not your destiny. Your lifestyle modifications can alter your gene expression, which we call epigenetics. And we explain to patients, when you do regular exercise, you eat better food you can alter the expression of your genes. Right, and yes. And it can modify the disease itself. So it's amazing what lifestyle modifications can do. And especially with your expertise of heart or liver disease and pre-diabetes, these go hand in hand. If you talk about metabolic syndrome, hypertension, heart disease, they are all follow each other. If you have one, invariably you have the other yes. factor. Yes, it's these 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 thieves run together. It's it's a it's a pack of bad symptoms and and habits. Now on to the symptoms of heart disease, and 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 again, this is so key because many people, unfortunately, they're they're lumbering around with shortness of breath, chest pain, chest discomfort, swelling in their legs, not being aware that these are either early or later stages of heart disease, and they need to get in to be seen by somebody like you. So just punch out the list of symptoms that people may be experiencing that should have the red light go on in their head to say, I need to get care. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question, and I think this is very important for the listeners to understand. So when you have... Heart disease, we talk about blockages, coronary artery disease. So that can manifest with multiple symptoms and symptoms which are typical and somewhat atypical. Women tend to have more atypical symptoms. So their symptoms may not be classical or typical, but I will discuss both of them. Right. So typical symptoms of heart disease, which is angina or, or lack of blood flow to the arteries because of the blockages, will typically present with discomfort in the chest, which can be tightness heaviness, invariably associated with stress or exertion. Mm-hmm. And patients may experience these symptoms when they try to exert and symptoms get better when they stop. 
also exertional shortness of breath or dyspnea and exertion which you talk about right. something which is new a gentleman a person who is experiencing that last year they were able to climb stairs of their home without any difficulty and now they suddenly see that they are unable to do so provided they have not had any excessive weight gain because right. sometimes when patients ex- gain a lot of weight there is uh, symptoms of exertional dyspnea that can occur and then there is overlap of symptoms with some chest burning sensation that patients may have reflux but interestingly the statistics tells us that angina or coronary artery disease symptoms you can have concurrent reflux symptoms in 20 to 25% of the population right. so so many times we have patients say doc you know i came because i think i'm having some heartburn and then i got some tightness in the chest when i climb sure. the stairs in the last 3 4 months so that now you have a symptoms of coronary artery disease angina combined with reflux symptoms and you can have a overlap sometimes the 20 25% or even more so it is very important for people to know that if they are experiencing heaviness tightness pressure that may go to the arm neck jaw symptoms that typically occur with stress or exertion but sometimes symptoms may not be there at all you know asymptomatic heart disease with heart attacks may occur in diabetic where you have painless ischemia diabetes right. diabetic patients may majority half the diabetic patients may have an acute event and they have no symptoms at all but these are some of the symptoms then also uh, um fatigue um and women will present with some more atypical features then you have shortness of breath and then other symptoms that may appear experience in the form of unusual palpitations they sure. feeling some strong heartbeats irregular beats which is maybe related to pvcs or arrhythmias and you may experience um shortness of breath with then leading on to congestive heart failure where patients is having difficulty uh, in laying flat in the bed very very important sign if patient says you know doc i woke up uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning and i had to sit up at the edge of the de- bed and i had to cough and sat up and uh, this has been happening more those are signs of congestive heart failure right. swelling in the legs which is occurring recently again leading to congestive heart failure symptoms but sometimes may patient may experience some uh, sensation in the chest that is lasting a second or two here there see symptoms of angina will typically last minutes right see, if anything is a lasting few seconds that is not related to the heart but you may have concurrent atypical and typical symptoms so we always urge patients that if there is a change in your condition if you are feeling something new please please consult your doctor because we see this so often not realizing because once uh, they as they are not paying attention and they have an event or a heart attack then the damage has been done and then you know that damage uh, in, unless you do an emergency intervention uh, sometimes the damage is permanent and that reduces your lifespan significantly leading to congestive heart failure later on right and you know you mentioned the reflux and the the problem with that is that there is such availability of over the counter heartburn medicine and if you watch tv or look at the magazines you would think everybody's got reflux and so when this 50 year old gentleman or 60 year old woman is having heartburn or or sort of an upset stomach instead of thinking well my goodness i'm diabetic i have high blood pressure and i'm overweight 
this might be a heart attack, they, in a sense, go into denial mode and will say, no, it's heartburn. Let me take more of the purple pill. I'm sure you see that a lot. More than, more than, more than I realize in the sense that you probably see two-thirds of the patients who actually have symptoms of angina will come, Doc, you know, I believe I've got some heartburn going on, or they have actually been using the medication. Right. And invariably, there is, you know, it's a human nature, human psychology, where you're going to say, you know what, I believe it may be related to GI, and I'm seeking out for attention. But that's great. But if they don't seek medical attention, then unfortunately, they can cause damage to the heart muscle by having an event. And then, you know, then uh, that that's not good because I so much believe we have so much technology available. We have so much diagnostic things available in the presence of heart scan and calcium score where we can we can uh, diagnose heart disease before it has caused damage. Right. We have so much need tools available now. And three-minute test in the form of heart scan, then diagnose pre-clinical heart disease, then we can tell where do you stand compared to the rest of the population. And there's so much information available where we can help patients, but obviously the patient has to reach out to the doctor. Right. Now, with, with that said, the I, I know a topic near and dear to you is the calcium score, which I'm going to ask you to explain. I I believe the importance of this truly requires a dedicated segment. So not not to in any way cut it short, but I think give everybody an introductory understanding and some insight about the calcium score, what it means, and why they should think about it. That is one of the excellent questions you asked, and I think this is I have been extremely passionate about doing calcium scores. In fact, at Houston Methodist West, I was a physician who spoke to the CEO when the hospital opened 10 years ago to start doing right here. Uh, um, I have been doing calcium scores since the year 2000. So what calcium score is? Calcium score or the Agustin score was first described by Robert Agustin, a cardiologist in from in Miami. The calcium is basically uh, a stage 5B atherosclerosis stage in the arteries of the heart. So when the LDL particles ultimately go inside the walls of the vessel and ultimately over a period of time get calcified, leading to a calcified plaque that is measured by a CAT scan called the calcium score. So the calcium score is a number that is given, and we, as you know, there is, we have the left main artery, left interior descending, supplying the front wall of the heart, left circumflex supplying the side wall of the heart, and the right coronary artery supplying the back wall of the heart. Right. So when a patient undergoes this non-invasive test, which at Houston Methodist is done for $140 because the insurances still don't cover it, uh, so it is a, literally a three-minute test no contrast, no needles, nothing. A purely non-invasive test when the patient undergoes the CT scan of the heart, of the arteries of the heart, the patient is given a number called the Agustin score. We get the calculated score called the Agustin score. Uh-huh. And the data of the Agustin score was published by the Mesa Registry in the year 2006 when it became, there was the largest registry, multi-atherosclerotic uh, registry of 
patients in the U.S. We have about 6,500 patients who underwent calcium score. And then we measure the calcium score, and the classification is as follows. So zero is none, meaning no buildup of heart plaque in the arteries of the heart. One to 10 is minimal. 11 to 100 is mild. 101 to 400 is mild to moderate, and 400 being severe, and over 1,000 being very severe. So when a patient undergoes the calcium score, we the patient will get the number, and then we compare that patient it's based on their age and gender. So we plug them into the MESA registry, and we get a number called the percentile. And we'll have a 50-year-old male, and I'll tell you these stories. A 50-year-old male came to me uh, with shortness of breath. He said, Doc, you know, I put on 20 pounds, 25 pounds. I retired from the Marines. This right. is a recent story. I, I retired from the Marine. I'm going to come with shortness of breath. And, you know, I, I think it's go, um, I'm going to get on some exercise program. Can you check my heart? I said, okay, let's do So we did some testing, exam normal, EKG normal, echo normal, a little hypertension, like cholesterol, then for calcium score, calcium score, 1,000. Wow. I said, sir, you're, you are in the 99 percentile. He said, what do you mean? I said, one, when you have 100 men your age when underwent calcium score, 99 people are going to have scored less than you, and you are in the top one percentile. And when you have those kind of numbers, you know, at the score of around 400, you have a statistical chance of approximately 28% chance of a severe blockage in one of the arteries of the heart. Wow. And that percentage can rise to 40 to 48% when the score is 1,000. Sure enough, when I did stress tests and did workup, he had a 95% blockage in the circumflex and a 95% blockage in the proximal LED. Required stent in both the vessels, normal heart, no damage, only 50 years old. Now, after fixing, he's able to exercise, lost weight. And just that test was a tip-off, total tip-off, that this patient has got severe problems. So this small test can tell us so much, but calcium score measures only heart plaque in the arteries of the heart. The important thing is the plaque in the arteries of the heart is 20% hard and 80% soft. So... Um, if you have a high amount of heart plaque, it also tells you you have a lot of soft plaque. However, a score of zero, although statistically, if you don't have diabetes or you are not a smoker, it's almost that your 10-year warranty that you cannot have any events. But in a patient who is a diabetic right. or is a smoker, really, if they have score zero, they still can have heart disease. So it is a great test. It tells us that if you're not a smoker or non-diabetic, then your chances of having a heart attack are practically very low, very low, less than 1% over a 10-year period. But in a diabetic or a smoker, you still can have uh, events. And I have had patients with zero scores having events. So you, I mean, you have to see the patient as a whole. You just cannot say the score is zero. However, it provides us with a wealth of information. And if your score is zero and you don't have other risk factors, then you don't. Uh, we may not require even aspirin. But if you are a diabetic and smoker, you still may need an aspirin. But if you have any buildup of plaque, then that leads to what your LDL goal should be. Right. So we are able to tell the patient, sir, you are in the 80th percentile, you're only 50 years old, and your score is 200, 
and your stress is normal, that's great. You don't have lack of blood flow, but this is telling us that you are already having premature heart disease. Now we need to make sure you're taking your aspirin. You need to take your statin. Your LDL should be below 70, and you need to please work on lifestyle modification, work on diet, exercise, your pre-diabetes, diabetes. So it takes the preventive care to the highest level, and the patient starts becoming aware. Because you get your report card, we give them the report, and he says, oh, my goodness, I have already built up a plaque, and I'm only 45 years old. We see right. this. So it makes the patient more aware. They become more compliant, and that helps the patient and helps us because they become very aware of their illness, and that leads to better patient participation, and they then become more believers of lifestyle modification with diet, exercise, all the things. Now, really, in, in the last two minutes here, the, the most important question that I've got right now, so you, you get this individual with a high concerning calcium score, which is the analysis is, you know what, you're at risk for something bad happening. Now, can it be reversed, meaning one year, two years later, they do another calcium score and it's better. Can you get to that point, or are we at that point? So, excellent question. Um, so, calcium, calcium deposition is a process that takes years. So, typically, we don't repeat the score um, for several years, so okay. three years, five years, seven years. But the calcified plaque cannot be reversed. However, okay. the soft plaque can be regressed. And we know that we know that once you have coronary disease, aspirin reduces your acute heart attack events. We know that a lifestyle modification with working diet, exercise will reduce. Right. Statins are very, very important because we know that statins not only reduce the LDL, but they have the pleomorphic effect of stabilization of plaques, reduce the events. We have now data that fish oil uh, in the eicosanopentolic acid they reduce the trial. We know it reduces events. And we have studies which have shown that uh, m- medical therapy with aspirin, statins, may not reduce the calcium score, but can reduce atherosclerosis. There was a study by Steve Nissen, and uh, they did IVUS ultrasounds, and then they showed that these um, atherosclerotic plaque can be re- reversed. And the first study, in fact, came from Dean Ornish right here in Houston, Texas, right, right. in the 1996 that showed reversal of heart disease, but it requires a tremendous amount of commitment by the patient, compliance. It can be reversed to some degree, but it requires a lot of effort and commitment on diet, exercise, and medical therapies. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Randeep Suneja, a good friend, a colleague, a brilliant cardiologist and educator. Thanks for coming on tonight. And as promised, we're going to get you on, and and I think the calcium score story is important enough to get you back and just concentrate on that for an evening. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure. Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.